0: You'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We have finished our study on the life of David and now turn to this New Testament books, both of them. We'll be looking at First and 2 Thessalonians through the year and then Proverbs uh, during the summer. And so we're going to be looking uh, again at this letter from uh, Paul to the Thessalonians. And as uh, John has already read for you, we've got a little bit of the background from Acts 17, and so what's happening here is that Paul has come. He's, he's on a second missionary journey. He's out planting. He's on, uh, the road of travel that says shaking up the Roman empire because it's made everything so much easier to accomplish. And so Thessalonica is kind of right in the middle. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy, uh, go to Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalon- Thessalonica. Thank you. Um, they go to the city. And they go to the synagogue and they begin to plant this church. And so he ends up planting this church um, in about three weeks. And he so shakes up the city that, again, as you've heard him say, they've turned this the world upside down. And so uh, in the midst of that, they've gone and they've actually gone to Jason. And Jason was the one who was housing them. And they went to him and said, hey, bring him out. We want to um, abuse him and arrest him. And they had already kind of hid them. But Jason had to put up uh, money, actual money to, to the officials in the city and said they will not come back and disrupt the city anymore. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy leave. They go to continue to plant churches uh, other places. But it's still a concern on their heart. And so what they do is they send back Timothy to Thessalonica to speak to the Thessalonians. And so uh, what we get is that kind of a relationship. And so I want you to understand that again Thessalonica is on this uh trade route. And so it's become this great city. So it's on a port, so there's great fishing and there's great trade that's going on. And so the whole world is coming to them. And so it's a it's a Roman um province, but they get to rule themselves, which is kind of abnormal. There's not an occupying uh, uh army that's there at the moment and so it's polytheistic and so again if you would have just added Jesus to the pantheon I mean they're close to Zeus and all these kind of things if they would have just added Jesus to their list of gods it would have been completely different but when Paul goes in there and says I'm here to tell you about the way the truth and the life and we have found the Messiah and his name is Jesus he is the Christ And people began to believe and have their lives changed. That's when the world got turned upside down, when they said, hey, we're not going to bow down to Caesar because he's not a God. There's only one true God. And so, again, we live in a day very similar, don't we? Everybody talks about spirituality. Everybody's okay with you being moral. Everybody's okay with you believing in God. Just don't talk about Jesus because Jesus is the thing that messes things up. So we find ourselves, so hopefully as we begin this study, hopefully you're encouraged. You're encouraged to step out and you're encouraged in the gospel. And I want it to get bigger for you, not smaller. So hear these words of the Lord to you, and then we'll get studying our study. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, and this, this, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. For you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. But you received it with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as the gospel went to the Thessalonians, so it comes to us again. Lord, may it come in the power of your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might receive it as they received it. And Lord, may it change us. And then Lord, may we be imitators of Jesus Christ as we go forth, so that, This kingdom is turned upside down because of the gospel message. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is that there is a reason to give thanks. Because when the gospel message takes roots in our hearts, we have reason to give thanks for our new identity. And that's what it speaks about in this first part. So there is reason to give thanks. And so it's a defined greeting that he gives. So he's speaking to, first of all, the church. Because here's the reality. We are in this together. And I know we live in a day and age where people talk about, well, this is just my personal relationship. There's no such thing in the gospel. We are called to be a part of the family of God. We're in it together. We're in it to to build each other up, to encourage one another. So it's not just about going out there and, and having private time with Jesus. That's a part of it, but it's not the whole thing. We are called together as being a part of the church. And again, it's part of how it's unlikely to the world. Do you understand how unlikely it is for the Jewish people and the Gentiles to be together? Do you understand how unlikely it is for the rich and the poor to come and worship together and to have friendships, slave and free? People from different tribes and colors and and different tongues from all over the world. That's part of what the church should be. We should be a place of all things where people get to come in and you're not defined by what you do or don't do. You're defined by Jesus Christ and that's the unifying thing. That's why he calls us the church. And so he says to the church in Thess- for the Thessalonians and so he says in the church but then he also defines them with this identity. You are in God and the Lord Jesus Christ so it's an identity it's not just hey you're the church in Thessalonica it's in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ it's where we are drawn close to God's heart and again I I want you to, to, to revel in that that God has placed you upon his heart he has loved you he seeks you and so in the midst of that, he, he says, then Paul says, hey, you're so close to Jesus' heart that what I want to bring to you is I want to remind you of God's peace and his grace that he's given to you. And so he gives this great identity to the church, and then he starts by saying, I'm going to be very thankful in my prayer. And he's thankful for these three things. He says you've got great faith, you have love, and hope. But he defines them. He says that, first of all, you have faith in work. Now that seems a little odd, doesn't it? And I want you to know in all of these three things, it's we can do each one of these things in the short term on our own. We can have faith in the short term on our own. We can have love in the short term on our own. We can have hope in the short term on our own. It's only when in Christ that we begin to really uh, figure out what does it mean to have true faith. Let me give you even just a, a great example of this. It's a human example, but one that I think is very telling. And I've told this story before, so if you've heard it before, this is just a great reminder. If not, this is going to awe you, right? So it's about the, the great Blondini, a real person who used to walk over on tight ropes, and he did it uh, multiple times over the Grand Canyon. Not the Grand Canyon, um, Niagara Falls. Sorry, a little bit bigger, different size. Anyways, he goes over Niagara Falls. And he was someone who did it in such a way that he would stop in the middle. He would sit down. He would make himself eggs, eat the eggs on the tightrope. He would um, put people, uh, brought a wheelbarrow and had things in the wheelbarrow and took it all the way across the rope and then back across. But he gets, um, one time he does it where he crosses over and he begins to to pump up the crowd. Now, how many people believe that I can uh, go across this rope with someone on my back? Oh, yeah, you can do it, Blondini. You can do it. You're the greatest. You're the greatest. And he's just like, yeah, I can do this. Now, who's going to get on my back? And the crowd goes silent. Now, his publicist actually does come out of the crowd, gets on Blondini's back, and for two hours, they cross across the rope over Niagara Falls. Now, the only person who had faith and put it into practice was the publicist. See, we all talk a great game. I trust that God's going to do that. Really? Do you really put your trust and faith in action? Because when we do that, what it does is it directs our full attention to Christ into heaven. That's why Jesus tells us, keep our eyes focused on him, not the world. What did he tell Peter when he got out of the boat? Quit looking at the waves. Quit looking at the tempest. If you would have just kept your eyes where they're supposed to be, you would have walked on water and continue to walk on water. Oh, keep your faith in where faith needs to be kept. And so he says there's faith in work. But then he also goes on and says love. Love is hard work. It's love in labor. That's what it says in the scripture. Hey, we're so thankful that we praise you for your love and labor. Here's the reason. Because it's hard to love people. Again, in the short term, we can, we can all say, and you guys look nice. Okay? And you guys got dressed up and you're clean and you smell good. But what about when you don't? My face yesterday was at the the bottom of someone's toilet trying to fix a a little thing on their toilet. I'm just like, what in the world am I doing? My face is literally in a toilet for love. My mom used to um, try to guilt me with this song. I don't know if you guys heard it. I don't know who, who sang it. For her, it came from Tammy Faye Baker that I used to joke her about. But she would talk about this song called The Cost of Real Love is No Charge. And it talks about this young girl who goes in and says, you know, for mowing the grass, for making my bed, um, for getting good grades, all these kind of things. Here's what it costs. It costs you $14.75. And the mom turns the paper over and starts to write down, um, for carrying it in my womb for nine months, for wiping your nose, for making your meals, for doing all these things, for for loving you. It's no charge to you. And then it says, you know, the girl flips the paper over, paid in full, and they cry, and it's a big thing. Okay? But the reality of the story is there. The cost of true love is nothing. To love is hard. And to continually love is hard. See, faith that's alive keeps us direction towards Christ. And then we begin to love the way that Christ loves in a servant love. Where we begin to see people the way that Christ sees people. And we have that because there's hope. And it says hope in the perseverance because here's the reality see our hope starts at the resurrection of jesus christ and it's not going to end until he comes back but the hope is assured it's not it's not like us saying i hope this team wins i hope i get um this job i hope that this happens in my life this is a sure thing but sometimes we lose hope don't we We don't always put the confidence in what Christ is saying as Christ is resurrected from the dead. He is faithful and he's coming back and he's coming back quicker than you think. That's why we have the title living life in the last days. Every chapter of this book talks about Jesus coming back soon. And so he says we have this hope because of what Christ has done for us. And then what he does is he says after the, the prayer, he says, you have been chosen by God. And he begins by saying, there's this election. You have been chosen. Now, again, election is something that can be very divisive. Okay. People have different views on this that we're not going to try to settle, um, predestination and election in this sermon. That's not the point. The point of what Paul is saying to this people, he's saying the reason why you're able to love, the reason why you're able to have this faith, the reason why you're able to have hope, is because God has loved you first. He's done it. he's shown you what it is to be these things. Listen, again, it's upside down. The Gentiles, the ones who were supposed to be the outsiders, and they are literally pagan worshipers. Are now believers. They are the elect. They are the chosen. This is unheard of. And so, as this thing begins to to change things, it's, it's the preaching of the gospels that's doing it. And so, it's it's this understanding that again, for us as of, of all people, when I grew up Southern Baptist, it was a guilt thing to go out and tell people, "Hey, you didn't tell this person the, the right um, way to get to heaven, and so they're in hell because you did. You messed up." Well, I don't want to mess up. Well, you need to go out there and tell them again. Okay. We, as people who truly believe that God is in control and he is sovereign, all we have is the joy to go out and tell people. Let God be God. But go and tell people. And if, here's, here's a true life example. We used to have the sweet lady, um, Eunice out in Colorado and we would go out with Miss Eunice and she would do this thing and I think she I think she would set me up, but she would say, Well, I'll take you out and we'll go to pizza and I'll buy your lunch and your family's lunch, and I'd be like, Yes. But she was so sweet she would start talking to our waitress and, and she would say, Well now you look like just a sweet woman. Do you know Jesus? And I'd be like, Oh boy, all I wanted was some pizza. And she would start talking to the waitress. And then she said, you know what? You know who could tell you about this? My pastor right here, Jeff's going to tell you about Jesus. And I was like, I just wanted to eat pizza. But why why did I have such an aspersion to just telling people what I love? Again, we we talk about evangelism being this thing that we have to do. It, It should just be something normal. It's two things. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, paid for your sin on the cross. And then he gives to you his perfection done the gospel what you love and what you believe in tell people just have the opportunity to tell them of how great it is and it says this comes by the power of the word which means you can't just sit there and go well I hope people get it we preach the gospel and again it's easy but preach it and the reality is is that these people, these Gentiles, and it says that the women that were there, everybody who shouldn't have been uh, listening to the gospel and being changed, were being changed. And they heard the gospel message, and they began to listen, suffer for it. They're suffering. And they're suffering because they've heard the word. But listen, I want you to understand that the power of the Holy Spirit changes you. And so what happens is in the midst of afflictions, he comes and consoles you. Again, do I understand how that happens? No. Do we have that that power all the time where God brings comfort? But if you've if you've lived a while and you've been in the faith for a while, you have those moments where you said, "I don't know where it came from. I don't know how I did it, but God gave me the means and the strength to get through this." Because he gives it to you in the moment. He doesn't make you into a super Christian. You don't get to rip your chest open and say, oh, I've got my big C on, so I'm going to be super Christian today. We still struggle. We still um, go through a life in tribulations and afflictions. That doesn't change. The question is, is that the Holy Spirit ministers to us in the midst of it. So Paul is giving this identity to this church. He says, I'm praying for you because God is with you and he's become the greatest thing. And so how does this impact then? He says, well, what happens then is we become examples to all the believers. And so we are imitators of Christ, imitators of Paul, and imitators of Jesus. But he starts off and he says, one, you're an imitator of Paul, of them. Listen, the the world wants us to be imitators of the world. Okay? The television sells us lies all the time, right? Right? If you would just have this, if you would just be here, if you would go to Temptation Island, then your relationship really isn't that good. And we'll prove it to you. You need to be about accepting of everything until it goes against what they want. (laughs) See, they want us to be imitators of them. But what Paul says is, I want you to be an imitator of me and you are an imitator of me. Now, think about this. Have you ever said the statement, I want to be like this Christian person? Have you ever said that in your life? Man, I wish I had the faith of that person. And there are many people in this church, and I'm not going to say it because then there's somebody who goes, Well, you didn't mention me. But there are plenty of people in this church that I can look to and go, oh, I wish I was more like them. Oh, the way that they love, the way that they treat people, the way that they go and visit people, the way that they write cards, the way that they give, the way that they go places. I wish I was more like them. And so Paul is saying, Hey, you saw the way that we live. We, you believe what we believe. You are... Even in the midst of hardships, imitators of us. But Paul says more than that, you're an imitator of Jesus. As Paul is an imitator of him. And again, what he doesn't give you, he doesn't give you a five-step process. He doesn't give you a 10-step, a 15-step process. We can't figure Jesus out. You know what? I, I Never in the scripture, and, and you can go and look at this, I've never seen him do a miracle the same way. You know why I think he does that for us? It's because he wants us to understand we can't figure him out. He heals one person blindness one way and another one another way. We want something where we can go. If we say, hey, if we pray a couple of times, if we give this kind of money, then God's going to provide us with this. And we think Jesus is this big vending machine. If I put in the right amount of money, I select the right thing, then it comes out. And Jesus says it doesn't work that way. You can't figure me out. And the reality is, it's not just about Jesus coming in and and changing us. He's saying, we're not just about being good people. He says, I want your whole life to be transformed. The total part of your life, everything transformed by Christ, everything, your mind, your giving, the way you think, the way you love, the way you do your work, all changed totality. Totality. And so what happens is he says, as this is being changed, as you're becoming imitators, the reality is, is that one of the biggest thing, the first thing you have is the word in affliction. So again, what comes is that there's a persecution that's happening. It's clearly, it's costing them. It costed adjacent physical money um, to say that they were never going to come back and disrupt the city. But it's also counting them because they are in a polytheistic society. And again, when they start saying things like Jesus is the only way and I'm no longer going to worship Caesar, then that upsets the people. You guys are going to bring an occupying army into our city if you guys keep doing this. If you want to be just spiritual people, that's okay. We can handle that because it doesn't affect anything. But when you start to upset the establishment, when you begin to upset the things that are going on, well, now we take notice. Martin Luther has a great quote. He says this, Jesus was crowned with thorns were we expecting the roses. We should expect that we're going to find affliction and persecution if Jesus truly is the thing that we love the most. Because it begins to to attack. And so what he says is, he says, when we have the word in affliction, it's the joy of the Holy Spirit that comes. Remember, this is a part of the second missionary uh, journey. So Paul and Silas have already been beaten. Listen, beaten so badly and then put into prison. And what are they doing? They're sulking. They want to write a letter to the governor. They want to to just get through there. They're upset with the food. No. They're singing. They're singing God's praise after they had just been beat to a pulp and they're in prison, shackled. And they're singing to God. That is not normal. Most prisoners, most prisons are not filled with hymns. And yet here Paul and Silas are singing because they had the joy of A being found, afflicted for Christ. It's the same for Jesus. Listen to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Who, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, again, it's upside-down thinking. To be crucified on a cross, has, even to this day, is one of the worst ways to die. And it wasn't that Jesus was happy, but he found joy in the affliction. Because what it brought to Christ was you and me. And again, let me remind you, the only thing that Jesus gets that he didn't already have up in heaven, is sinners. He had everything else he needed. So he goes with joy to the cross. And what happens, he, he says, you have become a living example. In regards to the gospel, please do not underestimate the power of the gospel to change lives. Have you ever thought about somebody, and especially when I tell you to, to think about three people to pray for, do you kind of try to make it easy on God and try to pick people that God would say, oh, these would be people, and these are people that are close to being Christians anyways? So I'm not going to shoot very high for God. Have you ever put the worst person that you think on your prayer list? Ever? God is about changing lives and transforming people don 't underestimate the power of the gospel because there are dramatic changes that come and transform One of the pastors told the story he was they were at a conference for pastors, and one of the stories is there was this Baptist uh, couple and they were at a small church, but they gave their testimony and they gave the testimony how she was on crack uh, had um, relationships outside of marriage, and they had the child and she had relationships with a man that would eventually become her husband. And they were sitting there uh, when they heard the gospel and someone came and talked to them was when they were having um, a drug party and their infant child was there in the midst of it. And someone came and told them and invited them to church. And they are the pastor and the pastor's wife planting the church. God, through the power of the gospel, transforms lives. There are some of you with some horrendous sins in your past. I'm an example. And God takes those who are so messed up, and by the power of the gospel message, he changes them and transforms them so their loves leave the world and the things that the world has to offer. And our eyes become so focused on Jesus because he's the thing we love more than anything. That's the gospel at work. And that's what's happened to these people. They've become a living example. they become a living, visible representation. Because listen, this is how much it's changed. They have been so changed in their lives that people are talking about it. And it's gone so far and spread so fast. Listen, Paul is cannot travel and get out from their influence. How incredible is that? He can't get outside of the venue where people don't say, Hey, wait a minute, Paul. We've heard that story about that person being changed before. We've heard it. Everybody's talking about it. Can that be said of us? Are our lives so transformed by the gospel? Are we so in love with Jesus that people are saying, I don't know what's going on over at Northside, but it is transforming everyone in there and their lives are different and they're, they're not seeking after the world. They're not coming to the same parties. They're, they're bringing things to people. They're loving people in a way that I would never have expected. I don't understand what's going on. And it's Jesus. So it's, they become this great visible example of what the gospel is and they begin to tell people. And so what he says, he says, how does this happen? He says, because we have turned from idols and we begin to serve the true and the one God. See, so the reality is, is again, we, we begin to turn from our idols. And again, we have to identify our idols. Again, it's very easy for, for these people with Paul because they were truly pagan idol I, uh, worshipers. They had other things that they were bound down to. I would venture, most of you don't have idols that you're bowing down to in your homes, even if you're into the Chinese kind of culture, Japanese culture and stuff, even if you have a Buddha in your house, I'm not going to go to your house and throw the Buddha out, or anything like that. But if you're bowing down to it or you're giving food to it, or there's things that you're doing, that's idol worship. But I would venture to say again, probably most, if not all of you, don't do that. It doesn't mean you don't have idols. Tim Keller makes this statement. It's when good things become ultimate things. That's an idol. When good things become ultimate things. Um, There's a pastor who says, I was going to name, he said, said, I was going to name six things, nine things, 12 things. He said, but here's here's the trouble with naming those 12 things, because if I didn't name your idol, you would have said, I'm glad I'm not an idol worshiper. He says, here's the three questions you should ask yourself. Write them down if you want to what do you think about the most? What do you think about the most? Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it your neighborhood? Is it your finances? Could it be even your ministry? What do you think about the most? And what do you find pleasure and satisfaction in? Because it could be even good things that replace Jesus. So what are you thinking about the most? The second question is this. How do you spend your time, your resources, and your energy? How do you spend your time, your resources, and your energy? Well, when I was a youth pastor, I used to say this, um, and I don't think kids do this very much anymore, but at that point, we had lockers. Remember you had lockers? Okay, And in my day, people used to decorate their lockers and all that kind of stuff. And I would say, whatever is pinned up or taped or magnified onto your locker, um, whatever's in your iPod at the time, that is your God. Okay, Whatever your checkbook says, whatever your calendar says, that will speak more highly to what you consider to be an idol in your life. So what are you spending your time on? And then third, the third question is, what disappoints me? What disappoints me in life? What do I think I need to have to make me whole? He says, answer those three questions and you just might find your idol. Now, here's the reality. Your idols might change. And until we die or Jesus comes back, the battle's never going to end. We've always got to be turning from our idols to who? The living and true God. The living and true God. See, it's the one God. It's not one of many. It's not a, a polytheistic it's not that I have Jesus and I sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on my life it's either Jesus or nothing there is no middle ground Jesus or nothing and as we have Jesus as the priority he's the true God it's just not a moral deity it's, it's again when Jesus comes and this is why it's such a big deal and for me theology is a huge deal kind of a thing it's why I truly believe in the virgin birth if the virgin birth isn't real if Jesus didn't come from a virgin birth then I'm going fishing. Because a man cannot save me, only the true and living God who came in a miraculous way. So anybody who tells you, oh, well, the virgin birth is not a big deal, they're lying to you. It's a huge deal. Or they're trying to get your money because they want to live the good life now. So it's a big deal about theology. So he's not one among many. He is the true God, the only one who gave his son, who came to live that perfect life and gives to us his perfection. The only one. And so what does this do? Well, it allows us to live waiting for Jesus' return. See, it changes our priorities. See, again, we're not so heavenly-minded that we become worthless down here. No, it changes everything about us. It changes our attitudes. It changes our ambitions. It changes our pursuits, our behaviors, our view of success. Listen to what Ian e. Bound says. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better. We are not needing any new organizations or more in novel methods. What we need is men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but but flows through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of prayer. If we just become a praying church totally sold out, I guarantee you we would be amazed at how God works. Amazed. Because it's him who's doing it, not us. And so when we put our our lives in that respect, again, it begins to change things. And so our responsibility and our readiness begins to change, which means that we live in Christ and for Christ here and now. We are called to be the salt and light of the church. We're supposed to go out and to show forth. But it also means we're ready for his return. He says he's coming back, and he's coming back in wrath. He's not coming as the infant child. There's no longer the opportunity to turn when he comes back. It's on the war horse. And so when he comes back, he comes with judgment. So he tells us now, go and preach. Remember those in prayer. Be imitators of Paul and of Christ Go and be an example to all the believers through all of the state of Florida, all around the world, about what it means to give our life to Jesus Christ. Be ready and ask yourself, what is God going to do here at Northside? Here's how I leave you. I hope the study of this book will encourage you to live a life, truly live life, endure hardships, and you look for the Lord's return. That's the hope. That's the desire. Let's pray.